Welcome to the Aritate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Richard Kennelly, Executive Director of Executive Education at the University of Queensland's Business School. It's a pleasure having you along today for another episode of the Aritate Podcast. For those people who aren't familiar with me, my name is Richard Triggs. I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. And we also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions. So if you're actively looking for a new senior executive or board role, please reach out to me via our website or LinkedIn, and I'll happily have a conversation with you about how we can help you. Let me get on now and introduce to you today's guest, Richard Kennelly. Richard Kennelly is the Executive Director of Executive Education at the University of Queensland's Business School. He's also Vice President of the Brisbane Broncos Leagues Club and up until very recently was Executive Chairman of Cutting Edge Group. Richard's background includes working in the banking sector, both in the UK and in Australia. He is a qualified corporate treasurer, a qualified banker, and a graduate member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Richard Kennelly. Well, Richard, uh, welcome to the Aritate Podcast. Thank uh, you. Thanks very much for making the time. I know uh, Monday morning here in sunny Brisbane. How's uh, your week shaping up? Yeah, it's probably, uh, I think today today's quite probably a relatively easy sort of lead into the rest of the week. The rest of the week's fairly busy. I'm uh, I'm in Brisbane all week, which makes a pleasant change these days to be in Brisbane all week. So I'm either here in, in CP1 in the CBD or I'm, I'm over at campus in St Lucia. Okay. And your uh, work means you need to travel quite a lot, does it? Yeah, well, it, it does. I've tra- I travel quite extensively throughout Asia. Um, and the reason I do that with, and I do that with, with UQ, with the University of Queensland Business School, and the reason I do that is because we're seeing a, a big demand for right. executive education coming out of the whole of the Asia Pacific. And so, uh, what do you need to do? do you, are you meeting with uh, other universities here, or business groups, or, or what's the uh, the requirement for you to travel? Yeah, I think I think the answer to that, Richard, is both. Okay. It's um, it's it, it's very interesting. I, I I said that we're seeing a big demand coming out of um, the Asia Pacific for sort of westernised executive education. Yeah, and that's coming from both other um, other universities um, or it's coming from corporates as well so right. I think as I think as the Asian Pacific market becomes more westernized and more global and, and barriers are, uh, are sort of breaking down we're seeing a real influx for this sort of westernized corporate education okay. um, and I'm a passionate believer that Australia is in a in almost in a unique unique position on the global stage right now to, to really take advantage of everything that's going on throughout the whole of the Asia-Pacific region. Because of location or other things? Yeah, well, I, th- I think because of location and because I think in the past that um, other universities in, 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 in Asia-Pacific or or other businesses in Asia-Pacific may have naturally sort of been drawn towards either North America or Europe. Yeah. I think what we have to always remember is that education is Australia's fourth largest export mm-hmm. behind coal resources, um, natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and that puts us in a really unique position because Australia has a great reputation for providing fantastic education. Mm, okay, great. Well, look, uh, for the people who are listening in, perhaps, Richard, uh, just to start the conversation, uh, talk about your current range of professional responsibilities. Okay. So my, my, my day job, if you like, is I'm the executive director of executive education for the University of Queensland Business School. And what, what that means is that we provide... Um, I was going to say that we, we provide um, sort of postgraduate or corporate um, corporate development opportunities for for executives, normally executives who've been in the marketplace for seven years or who've been working for seven years, and ideally would have three or four years in a in a supervisory or in a, in a leadership capacity. So we provide either open enrolment programs or we provide customized programs specifically for corporates. Uh-huh. The focus, though, is we, we, we're keen to move away from that being a bit of a sort of commoditized approach and we're keen to move more towards um, we're keen to move more towards an approach where we're actually talking to industry we're talking to businesses about the challenges that they're facing so that we can understand those challenges and provide a solution accordingly and that might be courses um, and it might be programs but it could equally be about the provision of um, research or it mm-hmm. could be about talent placement or that sort of thing. So that's my day job, and then I do I do a couple of board positions as well, which I, I thoroughly enjoy. One with um, one with the Brisbane Broncos Leagues Club, and yes. I, I, I stress it's a Leagues Club because it's fundamentally two hundred eighty poking machines. Right. Um, <laughs> or um, or I've, I've, I was until very recently the chairman of a group in the West End called Cutting Edge, okay. which is a fantastic Brisbane success story. Sure. Um, doing production and media. Um, so that that have been going for sort of twenty odd years. So I do that, and then I've got a couple of other sort of voluntary positions. So I'm on the board of the Australia China Business Council. Um, I'm on the Young Care Changemakers Board. All of which I I sort of thoroughly enjoy. So life's quite diverse at the moment. And uh, sounds like it's quite busy as well. Yeah, it it is. But I but I you know I I genuinely enjoy it. I I get a great buzz. Um, I, I get a great buzz and opportunity from. Or I get a great buzz and, and excitement from the opportunities that I think are here sure. in the tertiary education sector, um, and then the other things I do as well. Are, are, I, I think all are all sort of complementary to that. So um, yeah, it's good. It's uh, it's uh, it's. I sort of don't think about it as work anymore. I right. think I'm I think I'm too old to think about it as work. And I I'm a great believer that when the day comes that you stop enjoying doing something, then you should just go and do something else. Well, given that we're probably pretty closely uh, aligned in terms of our age, uh, I'm not sure I like that too old comment, but anyway. So, uh, Richard, um, why don't you take us back to where it all began and uh, talk to us about where you were born and grew up, your early life, your family, etc. Sure. Well, I'm a, um, so career-wise, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a career banker. Um, I fell into banking at a sort of fairly young age and... Um, this is this is a bit of the story where that 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 always sort of raises eyebrows because I had a sort of a fairly conventional upbringing. I I went to grammar school in the northwest of England and mm-hmm. and um, and I was then supposed to go and go down this sort of conventional degree route and um, I ended up dropping out of um, doing a doing a degree because I was singing in a rock band and uh. Um, uh. the truth of the story is that I was. Um, probably as a 18, 19 year old, annoying my parents sufficiently right. that I decided that that wasn't good either for um, career or domestic harmony. 
So, um, so I uh, decided to go and do something that I thought was respectable. Right. And working in a bank was probably the most respectable thing that I could do. Right. That's interesting because uh, when I finished school, I toured in bands for four years. Oh, right. And uh, I was a lead guitarist uh, and then uh, ended up in Melbourne chasing a record deal, recognised that uh, it was a lot tougher than I expected it to be. So I rang mum and dad and said, oh, can I come home and go back to uni? So uh, another similarity. But before we get to that, so what did mum and dad do? Uh, our mum and dad, um, my dad was a, was an accountant right. with, with ICI. Okay. Um, ICI was a big chemical giant. Yep. In, well, I was going to say in the UK, but really global. And, mm-hmm. and we, lived in, we lived in a place called Northwich in the northwest of England. And, and Northwich was, a, was an, um, an old Roman town. Okay. And, and North Witch, which actually stands for salt settlement. All right. So, um, so it's always been um, North Witch was really built on on salt, and that's why ICI were there. And my, okay. my father worked for for ICI there, and my mum my mum worked my mum worked in a school. Okay. Um, I was the eldest of three, younger yep. younger brother, right. Yep. Younger sister, both of whom are still in the UK and haven't moved sort of far away from home. Okay. So, um, but yeah, that was, um, as I say, it was a fairly sort of conventional, sure. fairly working class. I always describe it as sort of working class, but with, with middle class values, if that right. doesn't sound too too strange. But um, yeah, that's what, that, was my, that was my childhood. Uh-huh. And so uh, at 18, went and started working in a bank. Yeah, I, I got a job. I was I was lucky enough to get a job with National Westminster Bank, which was a fantastic bank in in, in the UK. I started there and went through um went I was retail banking and then um, so in those days it took you three years to get on the counter, right? Um, because you know you had to build that sort of level of trust and that you could get onto the counter. Um, and then I was recognised as somebody who had talent in, in inverted commas and went into area office to be taught lending and, and advances control. Did that, came out, went to work in corporate banking, and 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 so that was where my career sort of started in corporate banking. Mm-hmm. And then about ten years later, in 1990, I saw an advert in in banking world banking world in the UK for Hill Samuel Merchant Bank. So I joined this merchant bank called Hill Samuel that I'd never really pro- properly heard of before. Right. Um, and then to do corporate banking, and then to move more into the um, more into the structured finance space. So back in the UK, in the early '90s, the market was starting to um, develop its understanding of sort of leverage lending and doing management buyouts, management buy-ins, um, public to privates, and, mm-hmm. and so I did I I did that in the UK for for many years, and um, so it became more of a sort of oh, I suppose in latter-day terms it would be known as sort of investment banking but what we did in 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 hill samuels provide the debt normally alongside private equity right and uh i, I know from your cv you listed as a director so what, what did that mean exactly yeah it basically meant that i i headed up the deal the deal doing so okay, right. um so so i'd have a small team and we would we would go out identify the deal do the do the initial um, analysis of the deal. Did it did it feel like something that we could do? Okay. Um, what was the debt compared to the private equity element? You know how how highly geared was it? These mm-hmm. things were generally sort of fairly highly geared. So it required a lot more analysis than your normal banking. You you didn't normally have um, you, you didn't normally have the level of asset secure or security cover. That you'd probably get in a in a more sort of conventional business banking deal. So, okay. um, so therefore you had to concentrate on the cash flow, and therefore to concentrate on the cash flow and to make sure that there was sustainable cash flow over a period of time, 
you really ha had to understand the business, the market, the competitors, right. you know, all of those things. So it became it, the, the analysis and the due diligence of understanding the business, but not just the business, but also how the business fit in its marketplace okay. was absolutely critical. Right. And so uh, you were there for eight years? Yeah, I was there for eight years. It was five years was on was on the good side, and then I was asked to go down to the south of England right. and do um, and and look at um, n not in my office. I hasten to add, but look <laughs> at deals that maybe hadn't gone as well. Right. So I I, I went from um, I, I sort of went from I'm not sure whether it's gamekeeper to poacher or poacher to gamekeeper. Right. But I basically started to move onto the onto the bad side of the bank and look at look at companies or a portfolio. Of relationships that required intensive care okay. um, and that involved that would very often involve balance sheet restructurings and right. refinancings and um, but that was interesting mm. the, the, the adage there was always an adage that I'll never forget that in National Westminster Bank and it's perhaps not a, an adage that I would sort of promote too heavily for bankers now but NatWest always used to say that you've never lent it till you've lost it right um, and so when I did three or four years working on you know really understanding what happens when do things go wrong it really does make you a far better banker. Sure. I think Alan Bond uh, had this famous saying, something like, if you owe the bank a million dollars, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, it's their problem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you were, the, you were the guy that was sorting out the bank's problems. I, well, it wasn't a hundred million deals. It was, right. it was, it was, it, they were multi-million dollar deals, yeah. but, um, but generally, generally at that time, probably in the, in, oh, I know, probably the one to 20 million pound range in, okay. in, in the UK. So right. it was still very much the bank's problem. Sure, no worries. And so uh, what took you from that role then into the Yorkshire Bank? Um, we'd had a, our probably personal reasons as much as anything else. We, we, we were in the South, um, and I think a lot of people probably would, would relate to this, but we were in the South of England. Um, we, we had our first son down there. We had no family, so um, so the the sort of attraction to come back to the northwest of England was was great. Uh -huh. um, and I I was I was approached, and I thought this was really interesting. I was approached to open Yorkshire Bank in Manchester, okay. and if anybody knows the UK and you know Yorkshire Bank in Manchester, probably feels a bit like heresy for both Yorkshire people and Manchester people. Um, but I was asked to do that, decided it was such a great challenge. I hadn't really appreciated at the time that Yorkshire Bank was owned by National Australia Bank Group. Okay. Um, but back in the, yeah, but so it would be the end of the end of the 90s, um, NAB was starting to invest a bit in the UK. They, mm -hmm. they hadn't invested in the UK in the early days, was starting to invest in the UK. So I opened Yorkshire Bank in Manchester. Okay. And uh, in that role for a similar sort of time, eight years. Well, yeah, it, it, it sort of it morphed. To be honest, I it, I started I, I opened it in Manchester and then became divisional manager and, and became head of um, head of business banking for Yorkshire Bank, um, and then took a combined role on with Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank, mm -hmm. and then because of my background in corporate and structured finance, was asked to take on um, the head of corporate banking for Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank. Right. And so really, uh, from that point on, you were, everything was under the umbrella of NAB? Um, well, it was under the umbrella of what was called CYB, Clydesdale Yorkshire Bank. Yeah. So they, they, they merged Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank um, back in the day were two separate banks. Okay. Um, they, they, probably the right decision, brought them together under one banking license, Clydesdale Yorkshire Bank. Um, so I headed up corporate banking for um, basically for the UK operation of, of, of NAB. 
Right. Okay. And then uh, eventually that uh, brought you to Australia. Yeah. Well, it was it was interesting because I nearly came to Australia a couple couple of years before I did again to do a structured finance role to do a, a debt structured finance role, um, and it didn't work at the time for for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, was was reapproached in uh, was reapproached in two thousand and nine to come and do state general manager of NAB in Queensland, mm-hmm. um, which really was not on the radar, mm-hmm. wasn't a sort of career option I'd, I'd, put, I'd put down for, but, um, but looked into it, had to go through an interview process, was successful at interview, um, and did that role for, or did that role for over five years. Right. And so what do you think it was uh, about the way that you had developed your career that put you on the radar to be moved uh, from the UK into Australia and into quite a different role mm. uh, within and at the NAB here to what you've been doing previously. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because it was a it was it, I think you're right to say it was a very different role. It was it was a very different role. It was it was probably a much bigger role in terms of number of people and in terms of dollar size. So, Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank in the UK were still sort of fairly small banks, but I, th- I think one of the things that was starting to mark out my career was that I I either took on took on new opportunities or almost the sort of startups in a in a banking sense. So mm-hmm. opening new offices, dealing with things when they go bad, doing turnarounds, um, opening up new parts or, or new ventures with, with within the bank. So I'd I'd got quite a sort of diverse background, um, mainly in corporate banking, business banking, and as I say, originally structured finance. Mm-hmm. But I think it was probably that diversity. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd had a few, I made a, well, I knew a few people over in the Australian part of the bank who'd also worked for the bank in the UK. So I, I, was, I was known okay. over here. Yep. Um, and I was delighted to be approached. I was very flattered to be approached. And, and came, when I came here, you know, I'm not quite sure the size, the size of the business in the UK would probably have been the equivalent of uh, between five and ten billion sort of Aussie dollars in the UK, right. but the business over in Australia was at least double that. The Queensland business. The Queensland business right. was the Queensland business is a is a twenty billion dollar balance sheet mm-hmm. that generates half a billion of revenue with probably over five hundred staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I did I did that, and then you're also known as the because that's the largest sort of leadership portfolio in Queensland. You, you you're known as a CEO representative, right? So because so I'd be the senior leader in Queensland, um, in Sydney and Melbourne, as you can probably appreciate for a bank like NAB, there are lots of very senior executives in both of those sort of capital cities. Yeah. Um, but I was I was the senior sort of leader in Queensland, so I chaired the state leadership team, um, and the state leadership team was all the various parts of the group coming together at an enterprise level. Mm-hmm. And then my PL responsibility was business banking. Mm-hmm. So okay, and if you think about that five years uh, in that role, what would be a couple of things that you'd look back on and and uh, and be proud of as uh, sort of key achievements during that time? Um, I think that um, I, I think that the, the, the probably is a couple of things. Um, back in two thousand and nine, the GFC had sort of just about hit Australia. And oh, people say that, that Australia was immune from the GFC and wasn't hit by the GFC. I actually don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think that whilst it didn't suffer the same way that, um, that Europe did, Western Europe did, or North America, and whilst I think the banks were 
far better regulated and managed and led than you know maybe some of the horror stories that were starting to come out of you know other parts of the the Western world. Um, I think that, I think you know to say that the GFC didn't have an impact on on Australia and Queensland, I actually think is 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 not correct. When you when you turn around and you have to say to business people in the Gold Coast, you know that their assets have halved in value, mm. and that they you know that the that the dollar is such that tourism has fallen off the edge or. Or there's a weather condition somewhere, and that meant that, and that's had a serious impact on on agribusiness. So, so I actually think that you know we that when I came over, I didn't even know when I first came over, I didn't even know what GFC stood for. Right. And um, and I went home one night and said to my son, G, I keep hearing GFC, GFC, and I said, what does it mean? And he said, oh, it's global financial crisis. And I said, well, why didn't we why didn't we have those letters in the UK? And he said, because we were the global financial crisis. <laughs> so. Um, so I, I, I think that um, I, I think coming over here in early, it was very early 2010, meant that you you had to be you know th- there was a lot of sort of focus on clients and what was happening to clients' businesses and mm-hmm. and, I, and I think we did that in a very very respectful manner mm-hmm. um, and even in you know places like the Gold Coast which were really really badly hit you know we had to almost reposition the business and make sure that we weren't we were, you know tough decisions sometimes around whether businesses can continue or not. But I always wanted to make sure that we were doing that in a, always in an extremely respectful mm. manner. That, that, yes, it was a commercially the right decision for the bank, but that also gave the customer every opportunity to, um, to make sure that their business was sustainable. So I was very proud of the stance that we took then. Um, and then the other thing that was very proud, proud, but also very humbling, was the stance that NAB took in 2011, when we had the floods hitting southeast Queensland, sure. and um, th- that was that was humbling, not just from um, what the bank did, but I think also the way that the community responded to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we were actually in Kenmore in a house that backed onto the river, so we were out of our house for ten days. So we we you know we we lived it. We were we, we were evacuated. Mm-hmm. We had we had water in our house. Um, we we were very fortunate compared to a lot of other people, um, but we 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 were affected. Um, and I think to see that the way that the bank and the community sort of responded to that natural disaster was was just amazing. So give me an example of you know the way that the bank responded particularly. Oh well, we sort of put out a we put out a rescue fund for people who weren't properly insured. Okay. Um, there were lots of very tangible things that mm-hmm. the bank did at a at a sort of Australian level. To support customers who were very very badly hit, you know, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd give we'd give moratorium on repayments to business owners who were hit, who were affected by the floods and 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 had their business business sort of continuity disrupted by that. So, right. so we did all those things that I think a, a responsible banker should. But um, there was one thing that really hit me. I went up to um, I went up to Bundaberg. Um, the floods had only just subsided here. Um, and Bundaberg had been also very, very badly hit. And um, the guys up in Bundaberg arranged um, a bit of a fundraising dinner, mm-hmm. which, was, which was great to see. And, and, um, and then um, we brought that idea from Bundaberg down to Brisbane. And, we, and one of the things that I was very proud of, we organised a dinner, um, a fundraising ball. Um, we, we had 1,500 people, at the, probably more than that actually, at the convention centre. Um, we we arranged it within I think five weeks of the of the floods actually hitting hitting and we raised over half a million 
dollars for the for the SES. Right. So we, we, we arranged a flood raising, you know, ball which was which okay. was very, very successful. Yeah, fantastic. And and another thing that you've got noted on your C V which I was interested in You've commented Queensland was considered to have the best diversity in culture mm. within NAB business banking during your tenure. Yeah. So, well, tell us a bit about that. Well, I'm I'm actually very passionate about diversity in the workplace. I, I think that diversity in the workplace isn't just right, isn't just correct from a you know from a, almost a, from a sort of equality or human rights perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think you get better decisions. I think you get better. Um, I, I think you get better performance. I think the richness of the conversation is always better if you have diversity in the workplace. And, 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 I, think, and I think the manifestation of that can very often be diversity within the leadership team. Mm-hmm. But I think, that it, I think it should transcend throughout the, work, the whole workplace as well. Mm-hmm. When I first came to Queensland in, at the end of 2009 and met my leadership team for the first time, it was, um, it was 12 people, all of whom, um, I have to say, were very much like me. They were white, Anglo-Saxon, male career bankers. Right. And that wasn't something that, you know, whilst that is me, yeah. that was never something that I thought was sustainable. Mm-hmm. So we, we drove a deliberate strategy about changing what the face of leadership actually looked like in, in NAB in Queensland, and, and we went, went down the route of diversity. And I think that... Uh, you might need to stop me here because I get quite passionate about this. Uh, diversity uh, for me is not just about gender diversity either. Sure. I mean, gender diversity is clearly a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's I think it's recognizing that you know if you run a business that's as diverse and complex as NAB, then what you should have I think it's just a responsibility that you should have a leadership team that reflects the diversity of your customer base. Yeah, and that and and so that was something that we deliberately. We deliberately strategized and we deliberately put in place, and I think that's what I mean by considered to have the best diversity mm-hmm. and the and the best culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you do that? I mean, you've got twelve uh, white careerist uh, male business bankers. Yeah. I mean, how do you go about a a considered and deliberate strategy to yeah. to change that up? Well, I, th- I think the first thing to say is all these guys were doing a fantastic job. Yeah. So you know, they, they were guys, but they were they they were doing a fantastic job. Again, interestingly, the only person around that leadership team table who was female was the HR advisor. Right. So um, so what we did was we, we, we weren't about you know managing them out so that sure. we could bring in other people. Mm. Um, it was you, you just have to do it over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But we just have to make it very very clear that that's the strategy that we've embarked upon. That, but I think that's only at one level. I think what you've then got to do is, is, is make sure that we're engaging with other people in the workplace and trying to give them a boost and say, you should consider this yeah. position. Yeah. So I, I would deliberately mm. find myself as a, as, a, as a mentor, primarily to women in the workplace, mm-hmm. to try and give them a bit of a lift and to, and, and to engage with them and to hopefully enable them and to encourage them to go for these roles when they, yeah. you know, when they when they came up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've spoken about this on a, a couple of podcasts. Yeah. The fact that uh, there is um, a definite desire in almost a hundred percent of the times where we are asked to recruit a C-suite executive role, the uh, employer is saying we would really love a female uh, to get this, and we'd love to see great. Um, 
representation of female candidates uh, on your shortlist. Yeah. But uh, the reality is that um, the percentage of women who apply for roles is very, very low. In yeah. fact, I did an analysis over four C-suite roles and it was less than 7%. Right. Um, so I think what you're talking about is encouraging women to uh, take some risk in applying for a role that they perhaps wouldn't normally feel confident in doing is a great step in ensuring that we get good representation. Yeah, and, but we would we'd make a lot of noise about it. I mean, yeah. we'd, we'd we'd really try and increase awareness mm. that we were about not promoting women for the sake of promoting women because I think that can be very dangerous in itself. Sure. So I think it always has to be done within. It always has to be done within a um, within a, um, a a fabric of meritocracy. So th- there's always got to be you know it's got to be the right person for the job. But very often the right person for the job does not have to be white, Anglo-Saxon, mid-40s male. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it could be a woman. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but we need to make sure that we're engaging with, 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 with the women in the workplace to say, look, you know, we, we want you to come forward. We want you to be interviewed. We don't see why you couldn't do this role. I mean, these are, these are, these are pretty big banking jobs, you sure. know. Um, but but that's, what, that's what we did. And one of the things that I was very proud of when I left... NAB was that um, we had um, oh, there was the, there was a there was a restructure from the original structure of twelve. It was brought down to six um, sort of regional regional managers, mm-hmm. um, but two out of six two out of six were women. Right. Okay. Um, now, all right, that's thirty three percent. It's still you know I, ideally I wanted fifty fifty. Sure. I wasn't able to get to fifty fifty, mm-hmm. but I was very proud of very proud of myself, but also the team that that we we, we actually got to that state where. Mm-hmm. Two out of our six senior banking leaders were were women. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting uh, you know, when we start to see that representation more consistently. That we start to talk about diversity in terms of age and sexuality and ethnicity and uh, religion and and so on, uh, because that really is not getting any bandwidth at the moment. No, I, 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 that's why I said that when we talk about diversity, sure. we shouldn't just think of it as gender diversity. Yeah, yeah. It, it really should be diversity to reflect, I think diversity should always reflect your customer base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what uh, took you out of the bank uh, in 2014? Well, um, probably probably the thick end of 30 years in banking. I mean, I'd been a banker for my whole career. Right. And um, and I decided, I turned, I turned the ripe old age of 50 um, and probably woke up one moment and had a bit of a had a bit of an epiphany that I wanted to go and do something else, uh-huh. and um, and I didn't know I didn't know what, mm-hmm. um, but I knew that I was I, I I didn't want to be I didn't want to work in a in a major sort of top four bank. Um, I I wanted just to you know see what else was see what else was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm, what I really wanted to do at that stage was go and be CEO of a of a mid cap that was either private equity backed or going towards an IPO. Right. And then you realise, well, the reality is there aren't that many of those out there. Um, so so I so Cutting Edge came and spoke to me, and they were looking at a succession plan and and an exit strategy for their business. Right. So I went and did, did that, and then um, the Broncos thing was. Um, was something that I was asked to go in because they were having a few challenges and particularly challenges with their bank at the time. So I, I was asked to go in and help with that. Yeah. And then I, I knew um, I knew the guys here at UQ Business School and they said, look, we want to we want to change the direction of our executive education business and we think you can 
bring a lot to the party because of your corporate background. Mm-hmm. So right, um, and so uh, cutting edge was a initially a full-time engagement? No, no, it was always a sort of part-time right. chairman role. Okay. Um, but, but, but I used to, but I worked very, very closely with the management team and had conversations around how could we, you know, three great guys who'd been in the business for sort of 20 odd years mm-hmm. and were starting to think about what do we do with this thing sure. going forward? There was yeah. no natural succession coming through. Mm-hmm. So I worked there with them to, to put together a a succession plan for, mm-hmm. for for that business. Okay, and uh, I note that uh, for, again from your CV that you've uh, achieved some massive outcomes in terms of increasing revenue here at UQ. Talk uh, to us a bit about that. Uh, probably need to put that into a bit of a context. It was coming from a fairly low start. Okay. So, um, but I think that, um, but we have we have reshaped the business. So we've we've gone we've, we've we don't talk about business development anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a business development team here at UQ. I have an industry engagement team. Okay. And and that might sound semantic to some people, but it's very very important to us here that we're not actually going out there and trying to sell. Mm-hmm. courses and programs, what we're trying to do is develop relationships with industry all the way from government down to the SME sector um, and really to talk about what challenges they face. It, so it's, it's almost more of a, I was going to say it's a sort of banking relationship type role, it's almost that, but it's almost more of a sort of consultancy type role that we try and talk about the challenges that they're facing and then see how we can support those challenges and, mm-hmm. and, and, and it might be the provision of courses or programs but it might be via the commercialization of research or it might be talent placement. Mm-hmm. And we try and do that not just in Australia, but also throughout the broader mm-hmm. Asia-Pacific. Asia okay. And as somebody who has worked at a very senior level of leadership in your banking career and now working with an institution which is all about training uh, the leaders of today and tomorrow in terms of being more successful, what do you think are some of the attributes of your leadership style that have enabled you to... Uh, achieve the sort of things that you have in your career? Yeah, I, I think that it, it would be very, very easy to say that banking um, and academia or even the sort of commercial world and academia were very, very different. And in many ways they are. Mm-hmm. And UQ is a, is, a, is a huge institution in its own right. But, but they, they have something in common. And I think that what they have in common is they have to ensure that they are continually relevant to the market and that they're continually innovating to make sure that they're that they're providing um, a solution a service whatever it might be to their to their respective customers whether they're students mm-hmm. or, or 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 industry or or business whatever whatever it might be so i think to make sure that there's that there's that continual focus on innovation adaptation um recognizing what's going on in, in the outside world. And, and I think that's why, you know, a big approach for us here is to move us more towards industry engagement rather mm-hmm. than just trying to sell courses and programs. Mm-hmm. So I think to maybe be a bit more specific around your question, Richard, I think for us or for me, it's, it's you're right, I do have a lot of experience working with, um, with, with corporates from sort of FTSE 100 all, all the way down. I think it's the opportunity to, to talk to those companies and to recognise or to try and anticipate what's going on in the business mm-hmm. and then to think beyond the box from, well, it's maybe, maybe it is a course or a programme, but maybe there's lots of other ways that mm-hmm. we can help that business mm-hmm. as well. And when um, you're talking to industry, what are some of the consistent themes 
that they're talking about in terms of the challenges or opportunities that they're seeing, uh, which are reflective of new and interesting things happening in the market. Yeah. So rather than the sort of the the old adage of you know we just need our managers to manage better or, or whatever. What 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 are some of the evolving uh, requirements that you're um, hearing? Yeah. Um, I think I think I, I think the challenges that we're hearing are certainly challenges around innovation and recognizing that innovation applies to all businesses, not just new ones. Mm-hmm. So ch- how do they continually innovate and make them relevant to the market? There's always there all there, there's always challenges around leadership. Um, I think I think the quality the quality of leadership that 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 I've seen in both banking and 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 now varies greatly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that I think that. Um, leadership training and, and, and development is, is, is continually a big challenge. Um, so there's, there's that. I think the Asia Pacific is, is another one. You know, how do, how do businesses make sure that they are, I mean, it's sort of gone beyond now being Asia ready. We used to say at NAB that 30% of SMEs in, in, in Australia are Asia active in right. some way. Okay. Um, and SMEs, SMEs are really the financial powerhouse of the Australian economy. Mm-hmm. So how do we work with, that, with the SME sector mm-hmm. and make sure that they are Asia ready, Asia active, you know, exploring and, and, and really researching opportunities that might be in the broader Asia Pacific region? Um, and then I think the other theme that's, that's very, very interesting is that there's a real demand from industry for it to have closer relationships with with the university sector, okay. um, and I, I I have to be careful how loudly I say this for for obvious reasons. But I think that having had some experience of universities in North America, and certainly experience of universities in in Europe, and seeing and, and not necessarily from an educational side of the side of the fence, but more from a business side of the fence, I think that there's a bigger role to play for. Australian universities to get closer to industry and closer to business um, and to support what they what they're doing I think Australian universities have to recognize that that is a real challenge and opportunity going forward mm-hmm. and what about for yourself uh, in terms of ensuring that you're staying abreast of uh, your own professional development uh, both in terms of uh, formal learning and also in formal uh, ways that you educate yourself, what are some of the things that you do? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a it's it's a good question because my my sort of my academic background, I have to say, is more um, is more based on the role. So I'm yeah. a I'm a qualified banker. I'm a qualified corporate treasurer. Um, I'm a qualified company director. Mm-hmm. So I so I have I have those. But I but but if if there's one. Um, one thing that I'm starting to think about from my perspective is it's that academic sort of background. So it was it was interesting. Just before you came in, I was online seeing what sort of part time, um, more sort of academia opportunities there would be. I mean, one of the things that I would like to do um, is 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 hopefully to do a DBA at some stage. Right. So to do a doctorate of business administration, we had we had twenty five DBA. Um, students again in inverted commas who came here from Tsinghua University in China. Tsinghua is the number two university in China doing a doing a very much a sort of industry engaged program over here. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd love to do I'd love to do something like that in the fullness of time. Mm, I, uh, I've got an executive MBA myself and the, but the thought of going back and doing a DBA is 
a bit too daunting. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sort of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to. Well, I, I am learning Mandarin and have been doing that for for a year or so. Um, but there's still some. I still think there's something left in me. Um, academic wise for me right. to for me to for me to do oh, very good so uh, now looking towards the future um, you're enjoying your directorships that you've had yeah um, do you see yourself moving even more into a portfolio career like that um, yeah I, I, I possibly I, I sort of say that this is um, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing at UQ mm-hmm. um, and, and would like to do this for for a bit longer I, mm-hmm. I, I was sort of brought in to turn it around um, I always sort of thought that that would be a two or three, two or three year project. I'm yeah. probably just about halfway through that, I think, okay. from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be a there might be a bigger role. You know, I'd I'd like to think that I could explore what bigger roles I could do at, at UQ. That would be that would be one thing. Yeah. But I, I I've always thought that there was one more potentially big job left in me. Right. Um, before I really do go down that portfolio route, I mean, okay. I'm, I am quite enjoying. It's a very small portfolio at the moment, but I'm quite, I'm quite enjoying the diversity of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with with my background and experience, there's quite a bit I can bring to the party. Sure. Um, but I think, I, I, I think going forward, um, I'd still like to think that there was one bigger role, either either a, either a startup or or a turnaround or, or, or some sort of transformation mm-hmm. that, that you can do that's going to have a, a sort of material impact on, you know, southeast Queensland potentially. Right. Any particular industry take your fancy? Uh, um, I always hesitate I always hesitate to say banking because I don't think I could ever see myself working for for for, for one of the big four banks. But yeah. it's something it but it could be something that's finance finance related. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if it was sort of business finance related. I think okay. that would definitely take my fancy. Sure. Um, but I've got no idea what that looks like. Um, I'm, I'm, I've always been very passionate about sport, so anything mm. in anything in sport would would. I think it's got to be something. I, I think I sort of alluded to this before. I think you've, I think you get to a stage where you've got to say to yourself, "Look, I really enjoy doing this." Yeah. Um, so for me, it's sort of got to align to something that I'm that I have a passion for, or mm-hmm. or aligns to my values and beliefs. Okay. Um, do I see myself in the not for profit sector? My wife's in the not for profit sector and doing doing an amazing job. Um, do I see myself in that sector? Potentially, yes. Mm-hmm. If it was a cause that that I really resonated with, so um, I'm probably not giving you a very firm oh, look, answer, uh, but but I don't think there is a very firm sure. answer. Well, I think uh, sometimes it's best to let these things unfold naturally and gracefully uh, as a. Uh, uh, I'm into and just wait and see what happens. Yeah, quite. And so for people who are listening to the podcast uh, who are aspiring to a C-suite level role or potentially a board career in the future, you know, what are some of the key learnings that you've had during your career that you could share um, as some advice uh, to those uh, uh, aspiring to achieve the sort of outcomes that you have? Yeah, um <sighs> I think there's I think there's probably a few things. I think the the, the need to be adaptable mm-hmm. in I think the need to be adaptable in leadership. Um, I think the need to have um, the need to be firm in terms of your beliefs and your values, um, and to have and to have goals and to continue to have goals and re- reset those goals occasionally, but make sure that those goals do align to your personal values and beliefs. I don't think you should have 
one set of personal values and beliefs and then another for business. I mm-hmm. think they've got to align because fundamentally it's about you mm-hmm. as a person and, uh, and as an individual. So what would be an example of uh, uh, any, uh, a personal value that you've held that you've had to ensure gets uh, uh, reflected in your professional life? Um, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm, I'm actually very passionate about the power of people. Okay. I, I think that every business, I think, for, I think the best businesses are, are, are going to be the ones who recognise that people are always going to be their best asset. And again, that can sound very, very cliched. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way to make, but, but, but the need to make sure that a business is set up so that its people are harnessed and encouraged and um, enabled and sort of motivated and driven and, and all those other sort of buzzy words, I think, I think people... Um, I, I think the people proposition and the culture that you set is absolutely is absolutely key. I think it was Drucker who was it Drucker, it might have been Drucker who said that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. I absolutely agree with that statement, and yeah. I think if you don't have a sound culture mm-hmm. in any sort of business, whether it's a you know whether whether it's a small startup or or an institution as big and complex and diverse as National Australia Bank or the University of Queensland, I think that if, if, if you don't have a strong culture, then it's going to be very, very difficult to have, um, to drive a strategy that, mm-hmm. that's truly going to be sustainable and deliver the sort of results that you're looking for it to do. So, and I, and I think the people proposition is a key part of having that, of having that culture. Mm-hmm. And going back to your point about adaptability, what's an example of where you've had to, uh, demonstrate a high degree of adaptability in the work that you've been doing? Um, I, I think recognising that some, sometimes, you know, your career can go, your, your career can feel that it goes sort of one step forward and sometimes two steps back. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that because, mm-hmm. you, because you're always learning. So I think, I think the, the, the need to adapt when, um, even when you're, in a, when you're in a very, very different environment. I mean, I, I literally sort of came to Australia at the end of 2009 early 2010 and it felt like somebody had literally turned the lights off right because um, because the economy you know the dollar was high tourism numbers were coming off interstate numbers were coming off mm. property prices were crashing um, and that led to lots of challenges in places like well the Sunshine Coast the Gold Coast North Queensland you know sure. Cairns when I Cairns I remember Cairns which I think is a, a such a beautiful place the whole of North Queensland is such a beautiful place, but being up in Cairns, for example, um, and seeing all the shops that were boarded up, mm-hmm. and there was no tourism, and I mean, it's really bounced back. And I, mm-hmm. and I, and I, you know, I take my hat off to to the leadership up in up in Cairns and North Queensland for the way that they've dealt with that. But um, but to see to see Cairns, which is such a beautiful part of the world, be be facing so much, you know, facing such a sort of economic challenge as mm-hmm. it did. Um, during you know 2010 2011, um, so I think that I think the need to adapt to challenges like that and to recognise that you know um, I, I think accept that you you know you have to you have to do something you have to do something with what you can't accept but accept that there are things that you can't do anything about. Um, and I, when I came to Queensland, I couldn't do anything about the dollar, sure. but I could make sure that we were adaptive enough to make sure that we were looking after mm-hmm. our businesses and our, and our people who were facing some really strong headwinds. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So uh, we've talked a lot about career and business and so on. What about when you're not at work? What are the kind of things you like to do? Yeah, well, um, 
when I first came over here, I decided that I had to learn to surf. So okay. I'd always I'd always like water and, and the ocean. Um, so I, I learned to surf with with my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, we we I think um, I think we we uh, we then started to be aware that there were a few shark attacks happening. And right. I think we lost our mojo at about the same time. Okay. So we, we we still go we still go occasionally, but probably right. not as much as we did. Um, I I try and play golf um, very very badly. I'm a I'm a member of Brisbane Golf Club. Right. Um, but I, I I try and play golf. Um, but what's taking up the time at the moment is um, is training for the Simpson Desert with Young Care. Right. And um, my wife's the CEO of Young Care, yeah. and um, and we're training three times a week because we do a big we do a big Simpson Desert challenge coming up on the 28th of April, where we where we literally sort of fly into Birdsville. Go out for six hours in four by fours to a place called Popple's Corner, and then trek into the centre of the Simpson Desert, and trek out again. And it's a big fundraiser for for Young Care, which has always been right. a charity that's been very very close to my heart, even before my wife was the CEO. When your wife's the CEO, you realise that it can, becomes even closer to your heart. So um, so that's taking up quite a bit of time at the moment. So uh, just last weekend we were at. Kangaroo Point, walking up and down the stairs there for ten. Uh, walking up and down the steps there ten times before we went and did a ten k walk around Kangaroo Point. So, <laughs> so that's um, that's taking up a bit of time and, and energy at the moment. Richard. Sure, and people can donate uh, money to that. Yeah, we yes, and um, yes, please go onto the Young Care website and uh, well, first of all, have a look at the great work that they do. Um, but please go on and, and sort of donate to any of the trekkers. I've, I've got a page up there. Right. I don't mind whether you donate to me um, or to any of the trekkers because it all goes to a fantastic cause. And, you know, the Young Care Challenge around taking old, sorry, taking young Australians out of aged care yeah. um, is, is, is a cause that's very, very close to my heart and, sure. and really has been since we first came to Australia five or six years ago. Okay, great. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, Thank you very to much. your uh, donation very, page. So kind. just before we uh, wrap it up, Richard, uh, is there anything that we haven't discussed today or is there any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to uh, leave the audience with? Oh no! Just just thanks for the opportunity to, to have a chat. I've, I've thoroughly I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I, I think I think that um, I think it's only when you start to have conversations like this that you do sometimes reflect. I think we yeah. we all get very very busy, um, and we don't always have the opportunity to reflect on on our lives and, and, and what we're doing and where we're going. So I think that's probably a, a learning for me. Um, that I also try and say to other people sometimes it's good to take a bit of time out and just to reflect and have a bit of thinking time. Um, so I think yeah, this has been um, it's not really been thinking time but right. it's, been, it's been quite cathartic in terms oh, of looking great. back on some of the things that we've discussed yeah I have to look uh, uh, this is probably maybe the 20th uh, podcast that I've recorded and uh, certainly uh, I plan to be doing this for a long time to come but a lot of the CEOs and people I invite they go oh how am I going to talk for an hour? And then before you know it, it's, it's an hour. It's an hour. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I can get that. Yeah. Oh, well, look, that's excellent. Well, Richard, I really appreciate your time. Uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Well, thanks for joining me once again on the Arachay podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Richard, and I look forward to welcoming you back for future episodes of the Arachay podcast over the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, have a fantastic day.